0: on air. Join us as we chat with experts, analysts and commentators from the Asian region about business, culture and economics.
1: Look I think Australian agriculture is is in need of capital, there's no doubt about that and that capital needs to come from somewhere to reinvest into our future, otherwise we're going to get left behind in the dust.
0: Today ANZ's Mark Bennett chats with David Goodfellow, CEO at Reef Australia. ...about the future of investment in Australian agriculture. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, David Goodfellow. Thanks for joining me here today at the Ag Invest Summit in Melbourne. Um, Speaking for Blue Notes, it's been a really interesting day so far, I think. We've covered ground of succession to real estate, to commodity focus, to tax, to planning... Um, you're a guy of long-term experience in the industry, done some different things. Um, what are you just, as a, as a starter, what are you seeing and feeling within the ag industry in Australia at the moment?
1: Look, I think it's been a great day, Mark. Thanks very much for the invitation. I think Pip's also done a great job in chairing today. Um, we've covered a range of, of, of topics, which is very good, and the interest from the audience has been fantastic. Um, there's no doubt that agriculture's seen a lot of new entrants in the last few years, and that's caught the attention of a lot of people. And I think people enjoy getting together in sessions like this to just learn about what that's really all about and who's it working for, what potentially might be some of the risks and uh, and, and what is the future for our industry um, you know, with these changes that we're seeing going on right now.
0: Yeah, it's a really good diverse crowd. Um, I'll start on the topic of capital if we can. I mean, mm-hmm. going back a few years now, uh, ANZ and, and Port Jackson Partners talked about this um lack of capital um, in, the, in the industry or the need for capital to support uh, the market opportunity out to 2050, putting it at, you know, between $700 billion and a $1 trillion. Um, the capital gap, um, how important is that? And do you feel like capital is finding its way into Australian agribusiness in, in a good fashion at the moment?
1: Look, I think there's no doubt there's plenty of capital coming in, but if we put it in perspective, I've really enjoyed studying ag economics over generations. Uh, about every 30 years, we see a massive influx of new capital arrive to our industry. It happened in the 50s, largely capital coming in from England and Scotland, and that capital was put to work in Australia to really set up our wool industry, yeah. and that job was so profound that Australia you know, really rode off the back of that. We, we've heard that yes. saying for a long time, yeah. for many years, in fact, right through until the 80s, and, uh, and people have quickly forgotten how important that capital coming in from the UK was to set Australia up at that time um, for, for decades, really. And then we saw in the late 80s, um, after the, the cattle market had fallen on its knees in the 70s, in the 80s we saw a lot of capital coming in from Japan. And the Japanese had made a lot of money out of their tech boom and they were looking to take capital offshore They found Australia as a great place to invest. They could see the future in our beef industry as something that was very important to them. Mm. And Japanese investors came to Australia in in droves really looking to buy up farms to produce beef cattle. Mm. And that's a great story in itself because they soon learned that not every Australian farm produces top quality Angus genetics every month of the year uh, desired by the Japanese consumer. And rather than selling their farms and and taking all the money back at that stage, the Japanese actually brought more capital to Australia and they built our feedlot industry. Mm. And as history has taught us, the Japanese economy didn't survive economically for much long after the beginning of the 90s. The Japanese then sold up those assets, took their cash back to Japan. But the great legacy for Australia was that we were left with a great feedlot industry and we're still running off the back of that today. So another 30 years on brings us to this era right now. Today the capital's not so much coming from the UK or from Japan, it's it's coming from North America and from China. And my involvement in the industry right now is to help one group of Chinese to get invested into the Australian beef industry. And I've been working for REFA now for just over two and a half years to build out a business that's sustainable for them that will ultimately direct some of its product back into the the booming markets in China. So I think that's a great lesson just to reflect Mm -hmm. on history, that about every generation, about every 30 years, we do see this big wave of capital coming into our industry. But right now where we are is that from about 2001 until about 2014-15, the average returns for farmers in Australia were were, were pretty, pretty low, to be honest. And the consequence of that is that many... Farm businesses in Australia haven't had capital put back into them for a while. And I think there's a number of families out there who are having to deal with succession issues right now, contemplating that their farms aren't big enough and they haven't invested well enough into those farms to really survive separation between multiple siblings of a family or even just simply handing from one generation to the next if there's only one operator to take over. So right now we're seeing some families make conscious decisions to exit the industry and to take advantage of some of this new capital that's coming in, not just from overseas, there's some capital available in Australia too. But generally speaking, uh, we're seeing a lot of farms change hands right now and it's an exciting part of the industry because it will set us up like perhaps the Japanese did 30 years ago or the Brits did 60 years ago for the next phase of this industry that we're just about to start to to work through.
0: And it's a really, um, there's probably 10 different ways you can go with (laughs) anything from succession to productivity to, um, you know, opportunity versus um, contest for the assets. Um, We won't be able to get through it all today, but I I think it's really interesting to track that legacy of, of foreign investment that's built a lot of what industry uh, we now see and that people have benefited from from both within the industry and at the other side of it as consumers, both in Australia and around the world. But mm-hmm. I'd like to think or talk about uh, REFA for a moment. But but even before that, um, the China side of investment, there's a case of us needing capital, uh, this reinvestment case that you, that you uh, allude to, but also there's a motivation from within China to invest in Australian mm-hmm. agri-assets as well. And I wonder if you've got a view on What do you see as that primary motivation?
1: Well, I think it's best summarised by understanding that China's been opened up to free capital markets now for almost a generation too, And there's been a lot of wealth made by some individuals and some corporations in China. And I think strategically, it's been appropriate for them to start looking to divest some of that wealth into other economies around the world, largely about spreading their risk. But I think also strategically, with support of the Chinese government, it's been good for Chinese businesses to get to know other businesses in other parts of the world much more intimately than what perhaps they've done in previous generations. So there was extraordinary support from the Chinese authorities to help investors deploy capital um, outside of China. And Australia presented itself as a very good place for people to invest. So the motivation was firstly about getting capital out of China, but then The macro themes of growing world populations, increasing appetite for protein, all of that is real. So people with capital started looking around for opportunities where they could play out on those macro themes. And buying land in Australia just lent itself perfectly to someone who had capital that wanted to to get it out of China into an industry that was going to have a very bright future. So we have seen a lot of capital come out to Australia from China that's largely stopped as of mid-January now with the tightening of controls around that flow of capital and the word on the street is that it's likely that um, that prohibition of bringing capital out to Australia will be in place at least until the new government's announced uh, early in the new year Mm. so whilst we might be seeing a small rain check if you like to the flow of capital from China into Australian agriculture uh, we'll get a bit more clarity around that early in the next new year
0: Around 1.2 billion invested by the Chinese in 2016, which is three times more than we've ever seen before. Um, I guess a question on the lips of a lot of people in the community within and outside of agri is, is that healthy for our industry to have China investing so heavily into our market? It seems like and it feels like sometimes um, the Chinese are considered different than than other uh, foreign investors into our market. Maybe you don't want to answer to that. Maybe you do. Um, But the other part is... What do they look for in terms of the playing field here and you've got a wider investment community looking to invest? Is it unfair? Do, do the China, do the, does the Chinese investor consider the notion of returns in the same way that, that our own market here does?
1: Look, I think Australian agriculture is, is in need of capital. There's no doubt about that. And that capital needs to come from somewhere to reinvest into our future. Otherwise, we're going to get left behind in the dust. What we're seeing globally is massive investments into agriculture in other countries around the world and we can't afford to put up a a fence and say no we don't want overseas capital here in Australia because it will find a home somewhere. Mm. What we need to do is make sure it gets invested in the right form. What we don't want is just transactions of people buying and selling farms. We need that capital to work hard for the benefit of everyone in our industry. So when I think about what the priorities are for our industry to move forward, clearly the priorities are in agricultural education. So we have a group of people in our industry that can embrace technology and put it to work. I think the second priority for us is regional infrastructure so that we can move produce towards our coastlines for export much more cost effectively than what we've been able to do in recent years. And then I think the the third priority is to actually start to rebuild the productivity of these farms. So that involves refencing, repasturing, rewatering, building new cattle yards and new shearing sheds. All of those things that we need to be able to pr- produce more sustainably from the properties that we have as an industry. I'm not talking about refit. Yeah, yeah. It's really about the industry. So that money has to come in from somewhere. So. The question then is, where does the money come from? Does it come from Australian farmers? Well, not really. Some farmers are doing very, very well and have the capacity to reinvest into into their future. But unfortunately, many farms in Australia, particularly after the last 13 or 14 years, don't have those financial resources to take the level of investment that's really needed to get their farms producing at the highest level of of productivity possible. So if the money's not going to come from Australian farms, then will it come from Australian investors? And typically, the Australian superannuation funds and other private equity investors haven't really played a lot in the agricultural space. So if it doesn't come from farmers or other Aussie investors, is it going to come from perhaps the government? And we don't see a lot of government investment into agriculture. We're starting to see a bit into regional infrastructure, which is great. And Barnaby's driving hard the plans for the inland rail system. To be improved and that's desperately overdue for us as an industry but there's not a lot of votes held in the rural farming community right now and we're not going to see enough investment out of government even if we see some to really make a big difference in terms of making australia a lot more competitive on the world stage so really there's only one more pot of cash around that we can dip into for the capital that we need for our industry and that's overseas investment so I think I'm a very strong advocate for accessing that investment capital that is available around the world. But what I'm interested in also is how that capital is put to play in Australia. Are we investing in those priorities that I mentioned around infrastructure, education and farm development?
0: Do you see that, um, and I think you know it's a common um, discussion around uh, our industry as to why we have an enormous um, superannuation fund uh, pool here in Australia. Uh, why is it, do you think, that that money isn't landing in agribusiness when it is finding its way into the share market and other asset pools?
1: Well, I think the great thing about our industry is they say that still 90% of farms in Australia are owned by families, which is great. Mm. But one of the incidents that, that come out of that is that as a nation, we're only really a handful of generations old. So most people that are in the private equity space or even in the superannuation space at the senior executive levels, the guys that are ultimately making the decisions around investment themes, so many of them either came off the land themselves, have a relative that owned a farm, or at least a friend that owns a farm, and most of those farms are small farms that aren't making any money. Mm. So it's not hard to find on any investment committee of any superannuation fund in Australia at least someone that's taken a dim view of agriculture because their uncle or their dad or their friend never made a dollar out of farming. And that's really quite unfortunate. Somehow we've got to get across to people that there is good wealth to be made in this industry, which of course there is if we play in the right space and if we have the good disciplines that we need to really execute on strategy well.
0: Yeah, so maybe part of that is a reefer um, who uh, as an organisation you run here in Australia, you um, have invested already quite heavily across, I don't know, 13 or 14, <laughs> 15 farms, 150-odd um, million heading to, to three or 400 million. Uh, you tidy up the numbers. But um, that's a that's a sign, I think, to industry that um, there, there is an enormous opportunity out there and this money must bring expertise, technology, investment much needed into our industry. How do you set out as a fund to build... Um, to build uh, a big farming uh, consolidation? Is it around commodity focus, geography? How do you go about that?
1: Well, I think in my experience, I've been in this industry essentially since I finished school um, and I've had a lot of privileges to do what I'm doing now but for other organisations as well. I worked for the Bailey family for seven years and, and learned a hell of a lot about intergenerational wealth management but also investing in agriculture for the long term and really that the the big wealth creation that's available in this industry comes as much from land appreciation as from doing the things that we love, which is mucking around with sheep and cows and tractors. In fact, two-thirds of the wealth that's created from agriculture comes from land appreciation. And with that, it becomes incredibly important to be clear on your strategy for buying land, but be disciplined as well in terms of getting the timing right for when you want to invest in land. So I took that knowledge with me to Macquarie Bank and um, obviously had a fair bit to do with building Paraway Pastoral Company, which I was the chief executive of. And during that time, it was one of the greatest privileges of all, having the capacity to essentially start with a clean sheet of paper Mm. and design out a strategy of a pastoral company that would work without any baggage from having inherited a farm from a father or an uncle or something like Mm. that. We literally just started from scratch. And now with Reefer, uh, that privilege is the same. We're essentially starting with a clean sheet of paper. So what we've looked for is to build out a business in the beef industry. That's been our industry of choice. And that aligns with my parent company and their interests, both in China and Kazakhstan. But then what we've done is to identify two areas where we'd like to build clusters of farms. And that's been my strategy, is not rather than having farms spread out all over the place, is to have clusters of farms in at least two regions of Australia where we can build some very, very high-level local expertise. But within each of those clusters of farms, have individual farms that have serious scale, so we can get good leverage out of the cost of management. We like to employ the best managers that we can find, and they're not cheap, so to be able to afford that, we build big farms around each of the managers that we employ. But then also build specialist farms within each of those clusters so that each farm has a specific role to play and so also that we can get the synergies that are available out of one farm helping another. For example, one being a breeding farm, one being a fattening farm. Mm -hmm. So having specialised farms helps in improving the margins that we get out of each of those enterprises as well.
0: It's an interesting one because I wonder at what point does your diversity and even the overlays of corporate management um, come into play with, um, you know, you, you get diversity in... In a range of things but you also have the additional cost to deal with in that kind of structure as you compete with other um, family sort of large-scale businesses it's
1: a great question because there is no doubt that the most profitable farm business model in australia is the large-scale family farm mm. and corporates have to try and compete with that against very significant corporate overhead costs that small family farmers don't have to endure so the way we can be competitive as i said before is to have a strategy that perhaps family farmers can't do because they don't have the access to the capital that we have and particularly in the livestock business where we have the capacity to move livestock around between different farms that then gives us the privilege to be able to the capital that we can get access to gives us the privilege to be able to then put together portfolios of farms where each farm specializes in something but all farms work together so we get the synergies that exist between different specialised operations and to get that you need to have a minimum of about 150 million, preferably minimum 250 and then as you go up from there the returns become increasingly in your favour. So many family farms that have done quite well, um, you know, they exist in that 40 to 100 million million dollar sort of bracket, yep. and what we want to do is use the opportunity to have capital at a higher level than that to do some th- some things that perhaps some families don't get access to. So it, it really, for us, comes down to that that discipline around each farm of being of sufficient scale and then having specialist farms working in clusters to help each other out. That's one, of the critical,
0: we're, one of the critical factors we've seen in this kind of investment space, and you're well-experienced it through a few different... Um, large-scale funds and enterprises is the um, the importance of operational management and expertise. Um, where do you see the depth of that talent pool in Australia to see this kind of investment wave continue into the space? A- and also I wonder at what point, if at all, can technology start to influence the kind of um, talent that you need on these places?
1: Look, I think there's some wonderful farm managers in the Australian industry right now, and it's evident that when we have opportunity come up if we acquire a new farm we need a manager most often, that we are inundated with applications from very, very, very good managers. Mm-hmm. And the reasons why they're looking to move employment um, is, is typically because they've been caught up in a business environment that hasn't invested back into developing the farm. So most managers are, are desperate to get hold of um, someone who's supportive of investing into developing farms and accessing new technologies. Mm. So. I think this is one of the structural changes that the industry is going through too, where you know, the small-scale family farmer that hasn't had the capacity to invest back into improving their farm you know, is increasingly struggling to get very good talent to work for them. And the best talent is gravitating towards the corporates who aren't wasteful with money, but are making key investment decisions and in getting on with it. And I yeah. think that's a pretty cool environment to work in. Yeah, for any farm manager
0: absolutely and there is excitement with investment and i think that's a great attraction mm-hmm. to a, a lot of people in our, in our industry um i'll, I'll close with uh, one more um you talk of the scottish european or an english um uh, legacy of, of the wool um, industry in australia you speak of the japanese investment and the development of the feedlot industry um what do you think the legacy of the Chinese investment story will be in Australian agriculture, and if not Chinese on its own, the current sort of space of foreign investment, what, where do you think that will leave our industry in another 20 years from now?
1: Well, the money coming into Australia right now is not just coming from China. There's probably um, three or fourfold that level of capital coming in from North America right now, both Canada and the US. But whether you're Canadian or from the US or, or, or China, um, I think people want to see some change, and particularly the Chinese who love building stuff, mm. want to see us get on and get these properties developed. So I've been fortunate enough just recently in the last couple of weeks to get onto some other properties owned by other Chinese interests in Australia. And I'm just wrapped with the investment into you know revolutionary change that's going on on these farms that have been grossly undercapitalised for many years. And I think that's the exciting thing about the industry right now is we're seeing farms that were otherwise being perhaps let go a little bit, starting to get access to this capital to get them back up to their productive capacity. And the legacy of that will be that it won't only benefit the Chinese because farmers like farmers just love looking over the fence to see what's going on. And while they'll go down the pub on the Friday night and have some criticisms, deep down inside, I'm sure a lot of them are thinking, wow, maybe I should give a bit of that a go as well. Mm -hmm. And I think Companies like REFA investing into the industry and Gina Reinhart, you know, she's cu- captured a lot of publicity just recently. I think everyone's seeing the confidence that some, some pretty wealthy people have in the future of our industry is great. And I hope that other farmers don't get just swept along with that but start to think, hang on a minute, what should I be investing in too? that's going to make the difference for my farm and, and ultimately my family.
0: Well, maybe we see that ultimate productivity lift and output from Australian agri, but maybe the leading Australian families still play a role in 85 or 90% of the total population.
1: Look, I think so, but we're also you know desperate for capital to make a difference in Australia. Um, we're all well aware that the world population's growing, and it's easy to think that the, f- the world's going to run out of food. If I'm to be a little bit critical of ourselves as an industry, is that perhaps we've been waiting for this disparity between demand and supply to just push prices up and we'll all be rich, said Henry Hen. Mm -hmm. But the reality in the world right now is that with investment into other countries, into agricultural production, um, being at the level that it is, the rate at which we're increasing our capacity as a world to produce food right now with the new technology that's available is actually faster than the rate of populations growing. And we don't see that in Australia because we're just sitting back waiting for the Chinese population to pay two times and three times and four times what they used to for our beef. Mm -hmm. But globally speaking, we are getting better at producing food. And if we weren't, then the food prices would be unaffordable. The fact that wheat prices are coming down in real terms and the meat market's been up but it'll come back in real terms means that we are actually meeting demand and price in real terms is coming down because of that the difficulty that we have in Australia is that perhaps we've been left a little bit behind in this race to put new technology in place to improve our own productivity. And when you see what's going on in places like Africa and South America now, the increases in productivity there, even in China, are phenomenal. And we've got a little bit of work to do here in Australia just to catch up, let alone get ahead of that curve. And I think that what we're really keen to do is to bring that capital into Australia and put it to work uh, and see if what you know so just see how we can go on that uh, on that on that treadmill
0: well we like a challenge <laughs> and um and i'm sure we'll do well in responding um i wish you all the best with the reefer exercise as well over the next couple of years and uh, be interesting to reflect in another two or three years maybe how that's transpired david goodfellow thank you for joining me today
1: on blue notes great thanks very much mark great to be here
0: Thank you for listening to Blue Notes on Air. Blue Notes on Air was produced by the Blue Notes editorial team with music by Kevin MacLeod.